You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here with us uh, at Calvary. So I have three kids. If you've been around Calvary for a while, you know that. If you haven't been around Calvary for a while, I have three kids. So uh, my daughter, Mia, who turned 14 yesterday. So yeah, that's pretty awesome. And then my son, Xander, is 11, and my daughter, Livy, is 9. And so we're going back about four years. So when my son, Xander was about seven years old. He used to wake me up between 5.45 and 6 every morning. But now typically on Sundays, I, I, I wake up uh, pretty early, um, but there's a few Sundays a year that either we're out on vacation or one of the other pastors is going to share something, which is great because then I can come to church a little bit later. And uh, so I don't have to wake up at 5.45 or 6. And, um, but my son still on that Sunday morning woke me up at 6 a.m. because he wanted to ask me a question. And uh, that's why, you know the guy who wrote the song, I'm Easy Like Sunday Morning, which I think was Lionel Richie. Um, He did not have children. (laughs) Because there ain't nothing easy about Sunday morning when you have kids. Like trying to get children to wake up, to put on their normal clothes, to brush their teeth, to get both shoes on, and then get out the door. This is one of the reasons why I'm so proud of you. Like, the fact that you are here with your children tells me that you attempt difficult things. So that's a great thing about you. If you can be here, you can do anything. If you've already conquered that, all right? So anyway, so anyway, use that as motivation for the week. All right. So, but what happens is my son wakes me up at 6 a.m. on a Sunday, and uh, he's like, he wakes me up, dad, dad, yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm glad you're awake. Uh, I have to ask you a question. And I'm like, okay, what's the question? And he says, uh, why don't you like Mexican food? And I'm like, well, th- yeah, that couldn't have waited. Because, you know, people apparently are eating like chimichangas for breakfast. And uh, so anyway, and I said, I don't know. I'm just, just not really into it. Now, just so you guys know, I don't hate Mexican food. It's just, if someone's going to give me a choice, it's not going to be one of my first 10 picks. And so, and he's like, oh, so, so, so he's like, you know, you don't like Mexican food? Not really. And, and, and he's like, so what's your favorite kind of food? I said, well, Cuban food's probably my favorite. And he said, oh, very good. All right. All right. Let's all meet at La Carreta right after this. All right. It's on you. All right. <laughs> so, what happens is, is that he's like, well, when did you start liking Cuban food? And I said, well, um, I ate Cuban food pretty much every day from the moment of my birth up until the moment that I got married. Um, I ate Cuban food every day. And, and, uh, and, he's, and he says, well, why is that? I said, well, because I grew up in a Cuban home. And, and you know, your grandparents are Cuban, I'm Cuban. And he goes, hold on, you're Cuban? (laughs) And I'm like, yes, Xander. And by the way, so are you. (laughs) I'm like, you're half Cuban. And he goes, so I'm half Cuban, half Mexican? And I'm like, 
No. What would make you think that you're Mexican? And he goes, well, because mom, your favorite food is Cuban food and mom's favorite food is Mexican food. And so, and I'm like, how in the world does the, what our favorite food, and he's like, but we eat Mexican food all the time. And I'm like, we eat Mexican food all the time because your mom is like beautiful and charming and funny. And when you're like that, you get whatever you want, whenever you want. That's how that works. Um, and, and so, which by the way, if what you eat is representative of your nationality, a whole bunch of you people are like Chick-fil-A Pino <laughs> or however that is. Because every time I go there, man, that line, like half of Miramar is in that line. And so I'm just throwing that out there. Some of you may want to throttle back a little bit, um, give the rest of us a chance. And uh, so anyway, but I, you know, but once again, I just thought the, 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 the assumption was just hilarious. And we just make assumptions all the time. Some of them are completely innocuous and some of them, you know, can hurt us. Um, you, ever, you ever send somebody a text and they don't respond right away? All right, now think about what you assume in that moment. Like your first thought is probably like, wow, they must be so busy today. Like, no, that's not what you're thinking. You're like, that jerk is ignoring me. And you're like, dude, I will burn his house down if he does not respond in the next few minutes. And you ever, how about this one? You ever, um, you ever been texting with someone and then ask, and they're like, it's going back and forth. And then you ask them a question and then they stop responding. <laughs> oh, Jesus, take the wheel. Uh, it is, it's, it's like, I mean, that, that makes me all kinds of crazy. And so, but once again, we make all of these assumptions as to why people aren't responding. And, 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 and listen, you ever call somebody out for not responding? Like, that's a risky business. Um, like, you ever say, like, what, are you, like, too important to respond to me? Uh, you know, I'm texting, I ask you a question, and then they're like, oh, I'm sorry, we're in a meeting with the doctor about the test. And I was like, you know, and now you're like, you know, I'm just kidding, right? You're trying to fix that thing. And uh, and listen, there's this proverb, I think about this all the time. There's this proverb that says this, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. So we make all kinds of assumptions. And once again, as I said, some of them are no big deal and others get us into a bit of trouble. But probably the deadliest assumptions that we make are assumptions that we make about God. We make assumptions like this. You know, if I pray and if God doesn't give me the thing that I'm asking for, obviously praying doesn't work. I mean, I think God loves me, but if something bad happens, it must mean that, that he doesn't or that I'm not doing the right thing or I must have some kind of crazy sin in my life if I'm, everything isn't just like all roses and green lights and everything is good. And once again, we make these assumptions and not only are they wrong, but they hurt us. This is why getting wisdom, and we talk about this all the time, about getting wisdom. It's so important because it removes the assumptions and either replaces it with reality or replaces it with the wisdom and the patience to wait until I get better info rather than just going on my unfounded feelings. Now, here's why I tell you this, and as we kind of set this up, is because we've been studying for the last several months the book of Hebrews. By the way, we've only got two messages left, but uh, the book of Hebrews is the most theologically dense book in the New Testament. It was written to a group of Jewish Christians going through a very difficult time, and they're asking the question that sometimes we ask, and that is, if God loves me, why is life so hard? And so the answer to that question is this 
very eloquent, this very theologically dense letter that serves as an encouragement for us to do the one thing that's going to help when you're going through a season of difficulty, and that is to fix your eyes on Jesus. And throughout this book, the writer has been telling the readers that Jesus is better. In fact, for the first 10 chapters, he goes systematically through everything in their, in their history and just shows that Jesus is better. And Jesus is the one that's worth putting your trust in. And then in chapter 11, he walks through, uh, he gives them a lesson in Jewish history and shows them all the heroes of the faith and how they trusted and had faith no matter the circumstance. Then he gets to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, he tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus because even if we're suffering, Jesus suffered and he suffered well. And then he introduces this topic that's such a difficult topic to talk about. He talks about, he he introduces the topic of being disciplined by God, about how sometimes things come into our lives for the purpose of God correcting us. That like a parent, God will correct or discipline us, coach us for the purpose of helping us to be wise and staying away from the things that would hurt us. But that brings with it some challenges, and this is the challenge. And so once again, part of my problem is, and I have this all the time, is that everybody's got stuff going on. So like my preference would have been to preach for two hours last week and just give you all of chapter 12, but apparently you guys have things going on after this, so I got to cut it in half. So you get basically part two uh, today. And so the idea is, is that uh, sometimes things happen in, in our lives and it's God that allows it to happen and, and it's God disciplining us, correcting us, coaching us to get us back to where it is that we need to go, teaching us to have some endurance so that we can make it through the next leg of the race. And so the question is, and this is the, 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 the thrust of what God wants to talk to us about today, and that is, how do we respond to discipline and correction? How do we live our lives in in light of the discipline, the correction, and the coaching that God gives to us. And this is one of the things that I've been saying for a few weeks now, and that is that the things that are happening in your life are not things that God is doing to you. They're things that God is doing for you, even if we don't realize it right now. And this next section of verses is really part of that same conversation that we had last time. Um, And and the thing that we're going to see is that we have two clear choices as to how we're going to respond. We are either, in times of correction or difficulty, we are going to either run to him or we are going to run away from him. And the way that the writer illustrates this is by giving us these three Old Testament stories to show us what that looks like in each of these circumstances. So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 12, and here's what we read. He says, therefore, that is in light of God's correction, in light of Uh, God as a father disciplining us and correcting us. In light of that, strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. For by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. And if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things that I want to talk to you about when it comes to how do we deal with this idea of, of correction or discipline. And the first is this, is that I have a choice to be bitter or to be better. Now, here's, I said this earlier in our study of Hebrews, 
And that is this. And if you don't remember, one of the assumptions that the writer of Hebrews is making as he's writing to this group and by proxy now us all these years later, he's expecting everyone who reads this letter to be an expert in the Old Testament scriptures. Now I know a few of us aren't. So we've been saying that we'll kind of dish out everything you need to know as we go through. But there's a profound point that he's making. And if you've been tracking with us, we've said that there are six warnings in the book of Hebrews. This is the sixth and final warning, and it's a warning against allowing bitterness to take root into your heart. And he mentions, by purpose of illustration, uh, illustration Esau. Now, some of you, if you're not familiar with Esau, God calls a guy named Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac uh, and his wife, Rebecca, have two children. They're twins. One is named Isaac. The other is named Jacob. And before they were born, God gives this prophecy about the twins that are being born. Here's what it says uh, in, in Genesis 25. It says, And the Lord said to her, that is to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, this goes against what was the cultural norm. The way it worked in that culture is that the, the eldest son got the double inheritance. The eldest son got the birthright, which was spiritual leadership of the family. And essentially everyone followed the lead of the eldest son. But God tells Isaac and Rebecca, that's not the way it's going to work this time around. Instead, it's going to be the older is going to serve the younger. The younger is going to be the one that inherits the blessing. The younger is going to be the one that gets the birthright, which is spiritual leadership of the family. Well, that doesn't sit right with Isaac. And he decides that he's still going to go by the cultural norms. So Isaac sets out to still give Esau the blessing anyway. And so what he does is, now well, the, one of the things that you need to know is that even though they were twins, the two twins were about as different as could be. Um, I mean, down to what they, they were very different in how they looked. Um, you know, e, the name Esau means um, red. It also means hairy. And so he comes out and he's red and hairy. They're like, oh, well, we're going to call him Esau because they call him hairy, you know. And then Jacob, it says that he was like a smooth skinned guy. Um, he is, uh, it says, you know, Esau was like a man's man. He was a hunter, outdoorsy. Uh, Jacob, it says, was a dweller of tents. He was a lot like me, indoorsy. He said, hey, I'll go outside when they air condition it, which is kind of my philosophy of life. Uh, that's why people ask me if I like camping. And, uh, and I'm like, what is there to like about camping? So I leave my house, and then I decide that I'm going to live outside which, by the way, all of civilization was pushing so people would not have to live outside anymore, by the way. And then I, we're, I'm, I'm going to sleep inside of this little nylon thing on the ground, like the ground ain't sleep number, sleep number 1,000 maybe. And so anyway, and then the restroom, oh, just go right behind that bush. Uh, I'm sorry, that sounds like, I mean, I'm sure that's how they treat prisoners, uh, like in Gitmo or something. Like this cannot be how civilized people have entertainment. I'm sorry. And uh, so, and, and don't you like being connected to nature? Absolutely not. In fact, all human progress is trying to get us as far away from nature as possible. And I'm for that. So anyway, well, anyway, back to that. Thank you for the, we'll hang out and not outside. And uh, well, anyway, so I, uh, Isaac gets, he's old 
And he's at the point where he really can't see very well anymore. But he tells Esau that he's going to give him the blessing. And he tells Esau, look, I want you to go and hunt, hunt this animal, uh, hunt an animal, catch it, skin it, butcher it, cook up a stew, bring it to me, I'm going to eat it, and then I'm going to give you the blessing. And so they end up kind of cooking up um, because Jacob and Rebecca, you know, that's the thing about tents, right? Thin walls. So uh, Rebecca and Jacob hear what he's going to do. Like they, he knows that God told them that Jacob was going to get it. So Rebecca and Jacob cook up this plan. And if you want to read it, Genesis 27 tells you the whole story. But the real rub of the story is that Esau only wanted the inheritance. He didn't really care about the birthright. That is the spiritual leadership of his family. And that's why one day Jacob comes in from hunting. And uh, I'm sorry, Esau comes in from hunting. Jacob's making a stew. And Esau's like, I need you to give me some of that stew. And he's like, well, give me something for it. Why don't you give me your birthright? And he's like, who cares about a birthright, man? I'm starving. And he trades this incredible blessing of being the spiritual leader of his family for a bowl of soup. Now, I want you to think about that. What have you ever traded in your life for a bowl of soup? Most of you will go out to lunch, and you know what you will not order? The soup. And it's like $1.95, and you still won't even buy it. And you're like, is this a drink? Is it a meal? Who even knows? And, and you're just, why? Because it doesn't have that much value. And so he saw a bowl of soup as having more value then the birthright, he, he saw it as, 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 as nothing. He didn't care about the spiritual blessings, the promises of God that was given to his, his family. And so the, other, so the way the story works is, he says, uh, Jacob, I'm sorry, Isaac says to Esau, go get the, catch an animal, cook it up, I'm gonna give you the blessing. Rebecca overhears and says, L- listen to me, here's what we're gonna do. I have something on the stew right now that I'm stewing, and um, you're going to bring it in. But before you do, remember I said that Jacob was smooth-skinned. So they took these skins of a goat, and they put it on Jacob's arms. They tied it onto Jacob's arms. She's like, because your dad can't really see very well, but if he goes to touch your arms, they'll feel the skin of this goat. Now, friends, can we speak frankly? How hairy was this man? to where they started touching like you touch a goat and they're like, that's my son. <laughs> like, like, you got to manscape. You got to take care of that business. Like, that is insane. Anyway, somebody give that man a razor. Any, uh, anyway, so that's an aside. But uh, so he goes in, Jacob goes in with the bowl of soup with his goat arms and he's like, I can only imagine like, hey, dad. And it's like, oh, Esau, is that you? Yeah, what's up? And uh, just outside, you know, wrangling. You know, who knows what kind of talk anyway. So he gives him, he's like, hey, I made this, this choice meats. And then he gives him the soup. And he's, like, and, the, and he's like, hey, why don't you come here? Yeah, sure. So he comes over. And then his dad touches his arms. And, and his dad says, he says, the voice is the voice of Jacob. But the arms are the arms of Esau. This man was a hairy beast. Like, I can never, I've never gotten over this. And so anyway, so then he's, and, and then this is the part where it's like, bro, too far. Is that, he's like, how, J- uh, Isaac says, 
He's like, Esau, how did you get this so quickly? And he's like, eh, you know, <laughs> the Lord blessed me. Like, oh, for real, dude? Wow, that was too far. So anyway, and then he eats it, and then he, and then he prays for him and gives him the blessing. Jacob leaves. Minutes later, Esau walks in. And he's like, Dad, I'm ready for you to give me the blessing. And he's like, oh, wait, hold up. Who are you? I'm Esau. No, no, no. I just felt the arms of Esau. And by the way, take care of that business later on. And, uh, and so anyway, the whole thing goes on. Well, any, so Esau starts freaking out. He gets so upset to the point where the only thing, he gets so angry, the only thing that, and this is, you got to read this in Genesis 27, it, the only thing that calms Esau down is the thought that he's going to kill his brother. So I want you to understand someone, like maybe you're talking to one of your kids, and they're upset, and you're like, you know, you're, you're like, hey, we'll swing by McDonald's. You know what I mean? You're saying something, right? We'll get one of those Sundays. You're like, okay. This, Jacob is freaking out, or, or Esau's freaking out. And then he's like, oh. and then he's like, it's okay. I'm going to commit first degree murder on my brother. Like, that's what's calming us down. Bro, you need medication. Like, anyway, that's another story. But here's the thing. Back, back to, so this is the thing. Like, this is a whole messed up situation. But here's what it says about Esau. And this is the thing that I find so amazing. In verse 16, it says that Esau was a fornicator. That is, he was sexually immoral. But then it says that he was a profane person. Now, that doesn't mean he cussed like a sailor. That, that word literally profane means that he was a godless person. He was a secular person. He's a person that didn't have any regard for spiritual things. Now, this is where this ties back completely. And this is why I wanted to tell you the story. Is because when Esau experiences that it's like, oh, that prophecy. And I'm sure he had heard it throughout the course of his life. But his dad was going to go against what God wanted and give him the blessing anyway. And then he experiences the correction from God. His response is not to go to God. His response is to rebel against God. That if, he wasn't gonna, if God wasn't going to give him everything that he wanted, he wasn't going to play the game at all. And that's why the next thing that we learn, when, I, when Esau gives away his birthright to his brother for a bowl of soup, the next thing that we learn is that, the, the next thing is that he marries these two kind of random women from two other nations. That is, other nations that weren't part of the covenant that God had made with his family. And, and here's, what, here's the commentary at the end of Genesis 26. It says this. And these two women, they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Now here's why the writer brings this up. And here's the warning. Is that there can be correction that comes into your life. And if you don't handle it well, if you don't handle well what happens in your life, that there will be bitterness that starts taking root in your life. And why does he call it a root? Why does he call it bitterness? Why does he call it a root of bitterness? Because roots are invisible. They're unseen. And yet they are the thing that feed the part of the tree that we actually see. And the problem with bitterness is that it distorts your life. We stop seeing reality correctly. And all we see are the things that feed our anger and feed the bitterness that we have. To the point where we will rewrite history to feed our bitterness. You see, I, I always think of this. There's this kind of funny story I heard years ago about this man who wanted to become a monk. So he goes to the monastery and he talks to the head monk and the head monk says, look, this is the rule. You have to take a vow of silence. You can speak two words per year. 
And he says, fine. So he agrees. After the first year, he goes into the head monk's office and he says, bad food leaves. Another year goes by. He walks into the head monk's office and he says, robe uncomfortable. And then apparently nothing had changed because after the third year, he walks into the head monk's office and he says, I quit. And the head monk says, I'm not surprised. All you've done is complain since you got here. Uh, Really? That joke killed at 10 o'clock. I'm just telling you that right now. Truth be told, they actually responded much like you. I just kept going with it. And uh, I just feel like dark age humor is money in the bank. And, and I guess it's not true. So anyway, scratch that one. I'm never using that again. I'm done. That's year four. So really, that got a better response. All right. Here we, all right. So next time I joined a monastery, that's how I'm telling the story. So, <laughs> Okay. So, but listen, this is what bitterness does. It rewrites history. It ascribes ill motives to everything. And it keeps us from moving forward. That's why a person goes through a painful divorce and doesn't forgive. But instead, here's what happens. They, they just start feeding the bitterness with anger. They start ascribing ill motives to start feeding the bitterness. And listen, it starts reshaping them. And you know what it does? Listen, After it reshapes them, it prevents them from ever experiencing a healthy relationship in the future. And it's just, and by the way, it hasn't done anything to the other person. They have moved on. But the bitterness is killing us because we've allowed it to take root. A person feels betrayed and they refuse to let it go, and bitterness starts digging roots and it keeps us from ever trusting anyone else again. And 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 this is the thing that we don't realize is that we think, I'm not going to, you know, like Esau, I'm not going to get what I want. I'm just going to be free and do whatever I want. That's not the way it works. You let the root of bitterness in, that's what starts controlling your life. And I can promise you, no one has lived a life of bitterness and enjoyed it. Instead, here's what they'll tell you, is that it took everything from them. Well, he goes on and presses the point. Verse 18 He says, for you have not come to the mountain which may be touched and that burned with fire to blackness and darkness and tempest to the sound of a trumpet to the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. And if you pause there and give me your attention, here's a second choice we have. I have a choice when, we, when correction comes into our lives or discipline, is I have a choice to be afraid or be bold. And what he's going to do is this next illustration are these two mountains that we can come to. Let me explain the first one first. And the reason why there's two mountains is because one will show us that we can approach God and the other that we're going to be nervous about coming to him. Now, The first mountain is Mount Sinai. This is where the Ten Commandments was given and the rest of the Old Testament law. And if you read Exodus 19, you will find that the mountain was terrifying. In fact, in verses 18 and 19 of of Hebrews 12, the writer gives a description of what Mount Sinai was like in seven characteristics. He says it was a physical place, that it could be touched, but he says it was burning and dark and stormy, that the sound of a trumpet called the people, that God's voice could be heard uh, as he spoke the Ten Commandments. And people say, I, I always find it funny 
When people say, oh, I love that. I wish I could have been there and heard the voice of God audibly speaking. You know the people that were there never feel that way? The people, whenever someone, you read the Bible, whenever someone hears the voice of God, their first thought was, oh, I didn't know I was going to die today. That's the general response that they have. In fact, in Exodus 20, God gives the Ten Commandments, right? That's Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Look what verse 18 says. It says this, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. That's what people thought. They were in awe of what, and they're like, it's just too much. And the point of the illustration is to show the two covenants and how the new covenant is so superior to the old covenant because it's not conditional. Now, if you've been with us for a while, this might, this next 30 seconds is going to feel like review. If you weren't with us, then this is new, but In the history of Israel, there were two kinds of promises that God gave to the people. There were conditional promises. There were unconditional promises. When God calls Abraham, that he makes him an unconditional promise, that he's going to bless him, and he gives him, uh, when when the people come to Mount Sinai, they make a conditional promise. It's a conditional covenant, and you always know if it is because it always starts with the word if. And God says, if you will do this, then I will do this. But if you don't keep your end of the bargain, then I don't have to keep my end of the bargain. And so, but the unconditional promise means that God is going to do something and it doesn't mean, it doesn't matter if you hold up your end or not. The new covenant is unconditional because while the old covenant was a covenant between God and the people of Israel, the new covenant is between God the Father and God the Son. And you and I are not involved in it. We are simply the beneficiaries of it. And so now we have the mountain number one, which the people are like, we want to stay away from it. And by the way, it's not because the law wasn't good. Throughout the New Testament, it tells us the law is good. The problem is we are incapable of keeping it. But that's not the point that the writer is trying to make. He's showing us that there is a better way. And that's what he says to us in the following verses in Hebrews 12. He says this, but you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The other option that we have is Mount Zion, and the writer gives us this beautiful description of what this mountain looks like and the resources that are available to us if we go there. He talks to us and tells us, number one in your notes, that it's a heavenly city. It's this heavenly place that this is the place, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask God that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this place, God's will is being done. That there's an innumerable company of angels. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2 that angels are ministering spirits to those who inherit salvation. That is, angels, part of their ministry is helping God's people. And that is the, these able helpers that are there for us when we need it. It also, the third thing that it says is that the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, this is a loving community where God, there are God's people who are redeemed by Jesus journeying together. It also says to God, the judge of all, 
the just God, all these times that we see something happen in our world and we say, when is God going to do something about that? There is a specific moment that everything that's wrong is going to be made right. The fifth is where he says, the spirits of just men made perfect. He's talking about not perfect as in you're just, you're, you're perfection, but perfect in the sense you've been made complete that we experience wholeness and freedom. So number five, the complete person. Number six, the perfect savior to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. That we have a covenant that wasn't based on how we perform, but instead based on what Jesus has done. And then number seven, the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And by the way, it's not talking about Abel being martyred. It's talking about in Genesis chapter four, when Abel brought an offering that was accepted by God. And he's saying the sacrifice of Jesus is so much better than that good offering that Abel brought. You see, everything about this mountain that we can come to is showing you that you are loved by God and that he stands ready to help. And your moment is, listen, how you feel about God, what you believe about God will determine how you approach him, if you approach him, and how you live your life. But you can either come to Mount Sinai, where you just feel like, wow, it's, it's just, it's so heavy, and I feel separated. When I mess up, I'm running away. Or you understand that your heavenly Father loves you and is ready to help, and now you say, when I mess up, I'm not running away from him. I'm running to him because he's the only one that can help me. Now, I have a nine-year-old daughter that is literally the funniest person I know, and uh, she's, she's hilarious. She has this absolutely amazing way of looking at life. Well, we were in Publix probably close to a year ago, and it was right before quarantine. This is when life was somewhat normal, even though Publix was madness. And it, was, it, it felt like right before a, you know, one of these hurricanes that never come. Um, but we buy all the milk and you know, whatever and bread. And so Publix was packed. And uh, people didn't really know what coronavirus was, but you know, that doesn't mean that you can't be hysterical. It, you know, you don't want to waste a good opportunity to be hysterical. So, uh, so we're at Publix and people are losing their minds. It's so packed. We're down one of these aisles and like we can't move because there's people coming from both, uh, both uh, sides. And, and, and Livy's like, Dad, what in the world? So she's eight at the time. She's like, what in the world? All these people come from. I'm like, oh, you know, this, people are just, they're, they're nervous or whatever. And, uh, and she's like, how are we going to get out of here? I'm like, I don't know. We'll just wait a minute and then see if it kind of clears so we can go to the next aisle. And my daughter, Livy, starts coughing. This is before masks, before anything. She starts coughing. She's like, oh, oh that, that coronavirus really got me. And people cleared out. And she's like, all right, Dad, let's roll. And, and I, I'm like, Livy, I've never been prouder of you than I am in this moment right now. Anyway, it was, it was totally amazing. So anyway, that's what I'm dealing with, all right? So one morning, I make the kids breakfast, and I'm sitting there with them, and uh, Livy's looking at me. I'm like, Liv, are you okay? She's like, yeah. I just realized you're not my real father. And I'm like, excuse me? She's like, yeah, I just realized that. You're not. And I'm like, she's like, you're not my real father. God is my father. And I'm like, uh, okay, that's nice. But Liv, you have a heavenly father, that's God. You have an earthly father, that's me. And she's like, well, God is in heaven and can come to earth, so he's my heavenly father and my earthly father 
Don't you read the Bible? <laughs> Little bit. Uh, and I said, okay, so if I'm not your father, then what relationship do we have? She says, well, you're an earthling. <laughs> okay. So I stand up, and, um, and, I, and so then I, I grab this thing, I take the cellophane off of it, and I say, you know, I said, because I have these brownies that I made for my children, but if you're not my child, you can't have one. And she says, huh. She says, is, um, is, are, are those brownies uh, with fudge? And she stands up and she's like, come here, dad, I love you so much. Now, I, now here's, the, here's the problem that we have, right, is that we talk about God as our heavenly father. And, and, and you know, the problem is, is that for, for some of us, like, that's a pretty easy thing to understand if you grew up and had a great dad. But it's, it's, it's a little bit different if you grew up and you didn't have a dad. Um, I grew up without my dad in the home. My parents were divorced, I think, by the time I was six, eight months old. Um, I had a stepdad for a few years, and, and he, was a, he was a good guy, and, uh, but he had no idea how to raise kids. And so we would go out on Saturday because apparently every Saturday you need to buy lumber. And that's, anyway, that's apparently what we did. We just bought like two-by-fours and whatever, and for whatever reason. And, um, and he would always remind me that I was not his son. That was like my, his, he's like, hey, I just, you know, uh, you know, and he would say something, you know, if you, if you were my son, you're not my son, but if you were my son, which once again, um, let, let me, let, let 47 year old Bob, and you're like 47, you don't look a day over 46. And, uh, but let him interpret that for you. What he was trying to do was say that he didn't want to replace my dad and he wanted me to have a relationship with my real dad. Um, but when you're eight, you can't like parse those verbs uh, in, in that way and you don't get it. And, and, and you hear like you aren't wanted and you know, anyway, it's, it's kind of a mess, but here's the thing that you have to understand. And once again, and I know this is a challenge for those of us that didn't grow up with a dad in, in, in our home, but I want you to understand something that your heavenly father is not a bigger version of your earthly father. He is the perfection of everything that an earthly dad could be. And even if you had a great dad, I can assure you he's very human and has fallen short. But he is even greater than that. And listen, if your view of God is, I've got to be perfect, then you're still going to Mount Sinai, and that's why it's terrifying. But if you come to him, if you come to Mount Zion and say, I realize that it's not about me, it's about everything that he has done for me everything that Jesus has done for me, then when I mess up, I'm not running away from him. I am running towards him because I have a heavenly father who is quick to forgive and ready to help. Well, quickly, let me give you the last couple of verses. Verse 25, it says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth but now his promise saying, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Yet this, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Last thing I want to tell you about this idea of correction, and that is that I have a choice to be shaken or unshakable. Now, once again, this is the third Old Testament illustration, and this is probably the deepest cut of the three. There's two shakings that the writer refers to. The first shaking is what he said at Mount Sinai, that the, the city, the, the, the mountain was, it was shaking the earth, and the voice of God shook the earth. The second is a reference to this Old Testament prophet named Haggai and speaks of the coming of the Messiah. Now, let me set the stage for you. The people had walked away from God and were sent into captivity to Babylon for 70 years. After the captivity was over, they were allowed to return to Israel and rebuild their temple. But they got sidetracked and they started working on their own stuff. And so God sends these two prophets, one named Haggai, the other named Zechariah, to put them on track and put them back on schedule. So the good news is that they finished the work. They finished rebuilding the temple. The bad news is that while they're finishing it, there were some people who remembered seeing the Old, Testament, the old temple when they were children. So they had seen it at 8, 9, 10 years old, 12 years old, and then they go to Babylon for 70 years, and then they come back, and now they're senior saints. And they say, it's been a long time, but I remember seeing the grandeur of Solomon's temple, and this is so much smaller. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a shell of that. And they start weeping because they say, this thing that we've rebuilt is nothing like the one that was before. And so Haggai says this passage that the writer of Hebrews quotes, and I want to give you the whole passage so you understand the context. This is what he says in uh, Haggai chapter 2. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it's a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. The people of Israel had experienced the discipline and correction of God, but now God is showing them, here's what's going to happen next. God is saying, what I'm going to do here and what you think is a, more sm- a smaller and more humble temple is greater than anything Solomon's temple ever saw. Why is that? Because in this temple, years later, is the temple that Jesus would walk into and offer forgiveness and grace and eternal life to all who would follow him. And it's, an- once again, another picture of the, the new covenant versus the old. And here's my point, is that we have these, well, what do we do when we're corrected? And what do we do when we go through a difficult season? We can be Esau and walk away when things don't go our way. We can believe a caricature about God rather than the real thing and say, well, I'm just not coming to God because I don't know that he's going to accept me, even though there's this other mountain that we can go to. Or we can weep over the discipline that we've experienced. And all the while, God is saying to you and to me, there is something so much better if you'll trust me. And here's why. Because I'm your heavenly father and I love you. And my friends, that's why communion is so powerful because it reminds us 
of God's love for us for the lengths that he went to prove that kind of love. That as a father, God corrects us and that it's always for our good, whether we realize it or not, but that this, the cross reminds us again that the painful roads that we find ourselves on many times, but there's a road that leads us to resurrection. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward and uh, they're going to hand out the communion elements and I'm going to invite you to hang on to them and we're going to partake of the elements together as Johan leads us. For I spoke away, you sing and Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we're taking the cup together. And Lord, we want to thank you. We thank you for a grace that is so amazing. For a love that never fails. And for mercies that are new every morning. God, Some of us are facing a tough season. God, help us to not lose heart. Help us to fix our eyes on your son. That we might endure this season. So that we might experience the glory of the next. And we know you're going to encourage us, inspire us, fill us with faith, with understanding, with wisdom. And we prayed in Jesus' name and everybody said... Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.